to a Hope 103.2 podcast. I said earlier in this series that Christianity has three dimensions, faith, hope and love. That's faith in Christ, love for one another and hope in God's future kingdom. That is eager expectation of the promises God has made. And while we're pretty good at faith and love, hope features less prominently. One of the reasons for that is that we love now too much. I know that's true of my own life. One of the other reasons, of course, is that the topic has often been associated with the wacky side of modern Christianity. I remember a cult in Gladesville years ago that predicted the very day and hour of Jesus' return. And people actually quit their jobs and gave up their possessions as they waited for Jesus to come. And the media camped outside their church building for the moment to pass. And it passed. Nothing happened. Recently, the Sydney Morning Herald took a swipe at fundamentalists in the United States who believe in the so-called rapture, the disappearance of Christians shortly before the end of the world, leaving everyone behind to experience years of tribulation before Christ returns in glory. Let me uh, quote from the article called Blind Faith is the New Power Base. The Pope says Australia is a godless country. I take that as a compliment. What use does the Antipodean state have for religion? Do we want to be divided like Ireland? or too frightened to get on a bus like people in Tel Aviv, or in constant vigilance for the rapture? The what? I was talking to a 15-year-old Quaker in Washington. It's what those bush-loving Christians believe in. The day the world ends and they are beamed up to heaven. He told me to look on the web. The rapture nerds have a site where those who will be saved can organise to have an email sent to their sinner relatives left behind on doomsday. How that'll help, I'm not sure, but while they are still on earth, it seems to offer solace. Well, despite all the wackiness and criticism often associated with eschatology, the study of last things, there's no avoiding the fact that authentic Christianity has always been resolute in its hope in God's coming kingdom. And a central feature of that hope in all mainstream Christian traditions, in Roman Catholicism, Orthodox Christianity, and Protestant churches, is the topic I want to look at today. The return of Christ in glory. The so-called second coming. Now this theme is shared in all the historic creeds of the Christian church. Here's the Apostles' Creed. This was devised in the 2nd and 3rd centuries. It says, Jesus is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. Or here's what the Nicene Creed says. This is a 4th century creed. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. More importantly, the theme of Christ's return appears in all streams of the New Testament. The writings of Paul, of Peter, of John, and of course from the very lips of Jesus himself in the Gospels. 
eager expectation of Christ's appearance in glory is at the very heart of biblical faith. Let me offer a summary statement of what the Bible says about this theme, and then I'll begin to unpack some of the important issues and problems associated with it. Here's the summary. At an unknown moment in the future, Jesus, whose glory was glimpsed in his life, death and resurrection, will appear in full majesty to judge the world, overthrow evil and establish forever the divine kingdom promised in the Old and New Testaments. Well, the first thing I want to say about all this is that the language used to describe this event prevents us from being overly precise about the details of Jesus' arrival, where, when, how, and so on. This is true of prophecy in general, actually. Um, Old Testament prophecy about the Messiah was very broad and frequently a little obscure until its fulfillment. For example, before the first coming of Jesus, it would have been pretty difficult to square the prophecies of Isaiah 11, which speak of the Messiah having majesty over the world, with the prophecy of Isaiah 53, which speaks of a suffering servant who gives himself for the world. Now, the same is true of New Testament prophecy about the return of Christ, except here there's an added problem. For the most part, prophecies about Jesus' so-called second coming are written in what is called the apocalyptic literary style. Now, apocalyptic was code language, full of symbolic numbers, animals, colours, and stock descriptions of heavenly glory. In the Old Testament, the books of Ezekiel and Daniel are full of the apocalyptic style of writing. In the New Testament, parts of the Gospels and the letters employ this literary genre of apocalyptic. But of course, the most full um, example of apocalyptic writing is the book of Revelation. Um, For example, take Revelation chapter 19, verse 11. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. Then I saw the beast And the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against the rider on the horse and his army. And so on it goes. Apocalyptic literature was well understood by ancient Jews and Christians, but it was completely foreign to Greeks and Romans and to many modern Christians today. In fact, the modern doctrine of the so-called rapture is based entirely on reading two New Testament apocalyptic statements as if they were real, literal statements. Let me read the two texts upon which the rapture is based and then say a little about how well-based the idea of the rapture is. Matthew 24, verse 37. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood... People were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen 
until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding with a handmill. One will be taken and the other left. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. The second passage that the rapture is based on is 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16. Let me read it. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Well, on the basis of these two apocalyptic texts, movies have been made, websites have been created, and best-selling books have been written. Um, I used to know Christians who drove around with stickers in their cars saying, Warning, driver could disappear at any time. This was a reference to the rapture. The problem is, according to most biblical scholars, neither of these two passages is about a rapture in this sense. For instance, the Matthew 24 passage, Jesus isn't talking about Christians disappearing while non-Christians carry on their lives as before. He's actually talking about the day of the end, when Jesus returns in full glory. His point is that the judgment which accepts some and rejects others will, just like Noah's flood, occur at an unexpected moment, right in the middle of normal business. One will be taken, the other left. The same point lies behind Paul's supposed rapture statement. 1 Thessalonians 4 has nothing to do with Christians disappearing, leaving non-Christians to carry on their business in the normal world. This is actually a description of the last day, when Christ appears and the dead are raised and the earth is judged. The statement about being caught up together with them in the clouds is classic apocalyptic imagery. It recalls Christ's return on a cloud, which is a symbol of authority in apocalyptic literature. If you want to look that up, just look at Daniel 7 verse 13 and Mark 13 verse 26. The point of the statement is that when Christ's judgment falls on the earth, we won't be under it. We'll be with him on the cloud. The phrase in the air just means at a safe distance from the judgment falling on the earth. My point is very simple tonight. Precision about the details of Christ's return is just not possible. We can know a few things for sure. The rest remains obscure because the language used to describe it is this apocalyptic language full of symbolism and metaphor. Well, in the next reflection, I want to begin to turn to a few of the things about Christ's return that we can know for sure. Hope 103.2. Thanks for listening.